When power is used well, it's not controlling and it's not manipulative. It's power with others to produce positive results for everyone. This skill is cooperative power. It's skill number five from the book Everyone Can Win, about handling conflicts constructively. Cooperative power is about engaging our power to steer in the direction of partnering relationships. Power dynamics lurk below the surface of relationships and they can shape conflicts and influence outcomes. So it's worth getting clear about relative power, how much it's being relied on, and what we can do about it when it's seriously out of balance. Power dynamics do play out a bit differently in different cultures, but the fundamental building blocks seem to be always the same. For this skill, we're focusing on building cooperative power. That's the power of pulling together, using power with rather than against as the driving force underpinning our outcomes. We'll each need to stand in our personal power, able to hold our ground while considering others in the process. We'll need to stay alert to possible misuses of power. So let's discuss the sources of power and how we can redirect manipulative power tactics. And we'll need to look at how we diminish our own power, how we can empower ourselves, and then how we can guide the combined power of people so that we all pull together. But first, let's wake up this topic. What does power mean to you personally? What role is it playing in your life? Do you think it's affecting how some of your relationships play out? Perhaps you're caught up in issues with some authority figure or a group or perhaps a government department. How does it show up? Do you submit reluctantly? Or are you an angry rebel? Perhaps you often feel very powerless and frequently defeated. Who or what has power over you? And what happens to make that so? Are there people who support you feeling powerful? And how are they doing that? There's a lot of food for thought here. What are the sources of our power? There's an underlying mesh of factors influencing who has what power over us and who we have power over. Let's unravel some of these individually and look at some of the major sources or bases of power. Let's consider first the value we place on the relationship itself. We want them to think well of us. And how could that suffer if we didn't comply? Are we anxious about staying on good terms with this person? Another power base is physical power. Could be strength, size, gender, age differences. They all actually influence outcomes. We definitely don't want this person against us. So around them, we tend to comply or remain silent. Of course, it's relative. If they're a lot taller or a lot bigger than us, consciously or unconsciously, we are going to feel a bit intimidated. We definitely would have as a child. And we will today if their physical power includes the use of violence or even the threat of it. Another source of power arises from the other person's expertise. 
Do we respect their suggestions because they know more than we do about the matter? And again, it's relative. What's their special area of expertise, of knowledge, information, or perhaps a special skill? Their ability to reward or punish may be a source of power in a particular situation. You might be dealing with somebody who holds the power to reward you if you agree. What rewards actually influence you? Can they refuse to deliver something you want if you disagree? Or do they tell you off if things don't go their way? Or punish you by withdrawing something? Sex and money are the two big ones here. Position or status is another power base. Do you defer to the authority that they hold within the organisation? How would you describe where you stand in the hierarchy? Is there a clear-cut pecking order where you work or in your home? Access to resources can bring immense power to the table. Money can offer us the freedom and the time to get things done. Some people acquire it from business, others inherit it. The aristocracies of birth, of industry and fame bring with them tremendous hierarchical power and influence. And they can be a great resource. How about us? Can we attract such people's support or investment with our own personal power and influence? Group power. It represents the combined power of a group that the individual is representing. For example, trade union representatives are often the voice of their very powerful trade unions. Perhaps the person you're dealing with is the official or maybe the unofficial head of the family or the gang. Or perhaps they're the spokesperson for a religious or a social or a political alliance that's very important to you. Power is also delivered by the law. Is the law or are the regulations on their side or on ours? Is it clear-cut or can we afford to test our case? Rules are supposed to be obeyed, of course, but they can be changed if we have enough power. Of course, the best power source of all is personal power. That's what's most impressive and might be more influential than all these other power bases we've been discussing. We respect and trust the person because of who they are. They're persuasive. What qualities make up their personal power? Perhaps we admire or respect their common sense or their ability to sell an idea well. They've got charisma or we know about their integrity. We might be convinced by their positive leadership or their ability to get things done, their enthusiasm, or perhaps their considered and perceptive approach. That's the power base we definitely want more of ourselves. So, to recap on the power sources that could be influencing conflict and its outcomes, the value we place on the relationship, relative to us their physical power, their expertise and their power to reward and punish, each person's status, the law, any group clout that backs them up, all these can be very influential and their personal qualities may be very impressive. One or many of these are likely to lie underneath your conversations. If they're not being used excessively, we can let them stay buried. But when relative power is directing the outcome, it's worth being very alert to what is going on underneath. There's one more power source, and it's huge, 
in my experience, it's not always focused on nearly enough. It's the power that comes from cooperation. It's about individuals or groups working together rather than squandering their energy in opposition. What's getting in the way of it? And how can we have more of it in our own relationships, be they in our personal life, at work? And what about nationally? Cooperative power does depend on one side influencing the other so that everyone is choosing to pull together in the same direction. However, this united strength might be rotten at its core if one side has been manipulated by the other into an unfair agreement. So, let's get clear about the difference between manipulation and influence. Influence is a necessary process in communication and it's often needed to resolve a conflict. But if we feel tricked or used or stood over, then something's gone wrong. We've been manipulated rather than influenced. The difference is not black and white. Let's face it, we've all done a little manipulating in our life. I'm afraid I have. But whether or not it's acceptable depends on how positive the outcome was and how open I was about my motives in the process. Here are some principles for influencing with integrity. Is everyone benefiting in the process? And is that the intention? Do they really know what they're being asked? Are they free to decide for themselves? Can they actually refuse if they want to? We need not regard influence of itself as a threat. In fact, not much gets done without it. We don't have to be so cautious about persuading that we end up with too little of what we actually want. If our goal is cooperative power, we'll often need to influence the direction that decisions are moving towards. Sounds good, but what if you suspect that you're actually being manipulated rather than influenced? Here are some general principles to start with. Slide out from under. State your ideas clearly and firmly. I statements come in very handy here. If the manipulator's stuck in worst-case scenarios, shift away from their negatives. Move towards a vision of possibilities. Move from problems towards solutions. If, on the other hand, the manipulator is overly optimistic, start a conversation on the possible consequences of the proposed decision. Encourage the flow of information to build a fuller picture. Point out where people's needs are not being considered. Perhaps you can organise the person or the child affected to speak for themselves. What if you notice a particular power tactic is being used on you? People might use them for extra leverage, and they're often a form of manipulation. They might be overly critical, they might behave righteously, or rebel. And if they do it repeatedly, the mere threat of it becomes manipulative. Other power tactics include withholding information, backstabbing, refusing to discuss the issue, or using up all the available time without actually discussing the issue at hand. People might milk their valued relationship by turning on the charm or using seductive behaviours, by behaving stubbornly, by sulking, withdrawing, crying, or perhaps finding a supportive ally. And not all of these start out as a tactic. Crying or rushing to someone else for comfort might be a knee-jerk reaction, but it can slip into manipulation. 
children sometimes stage managers very successfully by crying non-stop or appealing to the other parent. And adults have their own way of doing exactly the same thing. People might misuse their position or their known expertise or their ability to reward or punish. Coming from their position of strength, they manipulate rather than influence. Or they might threaten, they might argue you down, they might dismiss your hot emotions with cold indifference, they might pull rank, um, they might exclude you from decision-making on important matters. You know you've been manipulated. What can you do? Firstly, we can notice the behaviour. When we see it as a tactic, it has immediately less effect on us. Sometimes just naming it can take the wind out of its sails. You might say, are you pulling rank here? Or, I can see you're upset. When you've stopped crying, let's discuss the options. Or perhaps, do you realise you're shouting? That's not really persuading me. Sometimes it's better to sidestep the tactic, ignore it, or stop the conversation until the person is back in charge of themselves. Don't be overly hurt or overwhelmed or vindictive when you do return to the conversation. If we recognise that an unmet need is driving the tactic, we might be able to take the tactic in our stride and begin to include their unmet need in what we say next. For example, at work, I know you're short of time and need a quick decision. At home, do you know how much I love and care about you? Perhaps the person feels that a value that's important to them is being undermined. Maybe they feel their right to equality has been threatened. And you could take a moment to support that value directly. I really am listening to what you have to say. Or if someone's feeling that you're challenging their status, you might say, I hope it's clear that you do have my respect. Here's a general rule of thumb. When a tactic you dislike is being used on you, redirect the conversation towards the positive. Sometimes it's not just one tactic once. Sometimes the underlying web of power relationships can slide into a very destructive and habitual pattern. We all operate within a variety of power relationships, such as parent-child, child-teacher, employee-boss, male-female, and then there's all the hierarchies we're part of in the community. We've absorbed our patterns of relating within these from our past experiences, our culture, and our family traditions. Dr. Eric Byrne developed transactional analysis to describe a model of entrapping behaviours that people can become addicted to. Persecuting, rescuing, and being victim. And together, they form a power game triangle. There's styles of interactions that keep us stuck. We're replaying a learnt pattern from our past, and they might seem satisfying for the moment, but they place a heavy burden on our personal power. We diminish ourselves when we're addicted to one or more of these roles because we're not free. If we become addicted to a persecuting approach, we'll use aggression to get what we want and silence the opposition. Perhaps we'll shout. 
Perhaps we'll be so forthright that there's no room for argument. Or perhaps we seem gentle, but underneath we do know we hide an iron fist. Whole systems, not just individuals, can persecute people. Persecuting demands obedience, relies on blame, rewards, punishments, and position and authority. Sure, it looks powerful, but it's reactive, not responsive. It's a protection against the fear of uncertainty or perhaps loss of control and powerlessness. Well, let's face it, most of us have persecuted from time to time. We might not even realise we've done it. For example, if you've pushed your point of view without including others or without giving the other person a chance to express their side, you've succumbed to what we mean here by persecuting behaviours. When it's habitual, watch out. Long-term, it is untenable. Marriages break down because of it. Even high-level managers get fired these days because of an unacceptable relationship style. The second pre-programmed behaviour pattern to consider is being victim. I think it's very important, first of all, to distinguish between genuine victims of circumstances and when we're playing out victim as a social role based on our sense of inadequacy. Real victims who suffer from hardship, injustice or perhaps an accident naturally deserve support while they're going through their hard time until they can manage on their own. It's normal and healthy to need some help, advice or empathy in hard times and they won't need it anymore when things get better. Now this is quite different from the person with a victim attitude. In itself, it's a power base, though it is a warped one. When we're caught up in this pattern, we give our power away to others and we hold others responsible for our troubles. We see others as powerful while we feel powerless. But are we using power under? Are we in effect crying, poor me, you've got to help me? Are we relying too much on other people jumping to our rescue? And if they don't, do they become our latest baddie in our victim stage show? We can stay stuck in inappropriate situations and blame others for it. Perhaps we focus too much on how bad and hopeless it all is. Worse still, watch out if you regularly accumulate new dramas in your life. We can become magnets for situations when we're badly done by. Some of them are real, but some of them might be imagined. We may even have more accidents and illnesses than others. The problem is, when we're caught in the role of victim, we don't take action to find our way out of our difficulties. But we do talk a lot. We're actually drawing a little power from the attention and support that we're getting from others. At times, we can be even quite consciously manipulative. If we have an ingrained attitude of self-defeat, it'll become our trap and ultimately a real tragedy. It often arises from an overwhelming trauma in early life and it still holds us back from a true sense of our self-esteem. We've considered the destructiveness of persecuting and victim behaviours. Let's now turn to a third piece of pre-programming in this triangle, rescuing. Perhaps you fit better here. 
People who fall into a rescuing approach assume that the other person needs their help. They set aside their needs and they focus on fixing things for somebody who's had a bad deal. Thoroughly worthwhile sentiment. But if we're a rescuer, we pride ourselves on being very helpful and we can become too helpful. We can even disempower the other person. We'll take on the other person's work or make their choices for them. We might try to solve their conflicts for them, running between our victim friend and the other party. As an inveterate rescuer, we may get caught up by an unconscious motivation, the need to be needed. Therefore, we'll rescue whether the other person really needs it or not. Remember, too much rescuing locks the other person into being a victim. If you've ever put a lot of time and effort into supporting a friend or colleague, only to find that they just aren't taking your suggestions on board, or that they're continually asking you for more help, chances are you've been manipulated by a victim, and you've been played into rescuing. You're going to end up feeling used, and then you'll give off the blame vibe, and that'll make your victim person turn against you. Now they'll see you as a persecutor. Oh, it's a vicious web. An unproductive three-way manipulation can be going on here. Persecuting and rescuing agendas both need someone to be a victim. Victims are walking around with their pick-on-me and rescue-me badges shining. Rescuing and persecuting are keeping the victim stuck and the victim behaviours are getting rewarded with lots of care and attention. Their apparent neediness is going to hook a dedicated rescuer every time. Then the rescuer and the victim gang up together against the outside other and lock the persecutor into their role as the enemy. Oh, and we've settled into this pattern because it's how it was in our childhood. As adults, we can fall into the role of the parent that we most identified with. An authoritarian parent demonstrates just how persecution is done. Do it because I say so. If they also used violence, they may be teaching their child violence as a strategy. The wife or husband of the persecutor may have been your saviour as a child, your rescuer, and you might grow up wanting to be just like them. Or they may have been the brow-beaten victim, and you learn their attitudes of self-defeat and powerlessness. We can fall right back into one of these familiar roles the moment we're inflamed or hurt. Incompetence or a lack of respect might trigger our persecuting reactions. We might be scared back to the victim state of our childhood by a dictatorial boss or an uncaring system. Or we notice an injustice. Or our dear ones are hurting and we just have to jump in and rescue. It can become like a stage play with victim and rescuer playing out the drama provoked by the baddie persecutor. We might swap roles around from time to time and rope in others to play. In some families, this drama includes physical violence. And in others, it's more sophisticated. It's using subtle put-downs, innuendos and private hate sessions. Sometimes the play is staged in organisations. Management might be cast as the persecutors 
by those who were rescuing the victims. And victims get together and white ant projects and white ant other people with malicious gossip. A power triangle flavour contained union disagreements or workers' compensation issues. It can play out in community groups, aid organisations and even in the international arena, sometimes with incredibly destructive results. Once we're caught in the victim-persecutor-rescuer triangle, we can cycle endlessly through these roles and adopt different ones according to the situation. But there are ways out towards empowerment. Here are some principles. If it's looking like we're persecuting, we can learn to consult much more frequently. If we're rescuing yet again, we can put on the hat of coach and support the other person where they find their own solutions and take their own steps forward. If we're stuck in being victim for way too long now, can we perhaps take on some responsibility for getting ourselves out of the mess we're in? We can train ourselves away from persecuting towards consulting. It's easy to get caught up inside our heads and presume that what we are seeing is the absolute truth. Before we decide, of course we're right, we'd better consult, inquire, and not let it sound like a cross-examination. Our cue to switch modes, we're doing all the talking. So if you find you are, stop, ask a question, listen more. We need to be clear about our intention to empower others. Our role is just to make sure they're going in the right direction. We're a guiding hand behind them. When we notice we're often playing rescuer, we can switch to coaching the person so that they handle the situation by themselves. Of course, if they're the real victim of a circumstance, we'll want to give them a helping hand and that's fine. We'll know that we've done well when we see positive results. But there will be times when we should check whether we're overdoing the support. If you find yourself groaning at their latest request, if you feel worn down or taken advantage of, that's definitely your cue to pull back. Ask yourself, how much time do I want to give this? Get clear on your advice and support boundaries. You won't, for instance, help them write their assignment or their report. But you might be willing to brainstorm with them first of all, or perhaps look at a finished draft. Your goal is to get them to stand on their own two feet and be kindly and helpful in the process without overdoing it. If they seem to be focused only on the problem and not on solutions, you'll probably be hearing a lot of yes buts or ain't it awfuls sprinkled through your conversations together. Help them to focus in present time on one thing that they can change. And if it's not working, pull right back. Let that be another cue for you to pull away from rescuing. Check. Have they really asked for my help? Perhaps this time they only really need me to be a sounding board while they work out what they're going to do. Sometimes people just need a witness to what they're going through. Really listening while they talk it out can actually be a tremendous support, and don't underestimate it. Give them your full attention, and when they're ready, they take the next step without your help. The disempowered victim position is quite a hard one to shake off, 
And yes, in this situation, we might really be a true victim. That awful thing really has happened to us. But are we compounding the problem with victim behaviours that diminish our personal power? Well, firstly, we need to be kind to the vulnerable and shaky parts inside us. Life can get us down. We just don't need to add to it by loading on self-blame or self-pity. We'll probably need to refocus our self-talk onto the positive, onto the active, and back into present time, not in the past. Ruminating and blaming someone else is just not going to help. Focus instead on what we can do now. We can pat ourselves on the back for every small step we take out of defeat and overwhelm. Perhaps it's time to stand up for what we deserve, get the feedback and learn some new and better ways. Rather than searching for who to blame, we do better to consider how and why this happened so that we can avoid the trap in the future. Here's a very useful reframe. Can you recast your persecutor in your mind? Swap them over into the role of teacher. Well, they might think they're teaching you to keep quiet, but use them to train you in how to be wisely assertive. The lesson we take from them is about finding our courage. Perhaps it's to stand up to them, or maybe it's about finding the strength to walk away. Victim, persecutor or rescuer behaviours diminish our personal power. But consulting, coaching, taking responsibility for ourselves puts us in charge. We take back our personal power. Personal power comes from within us. When we're resentful or coward by a situation or rebellious, we undermine our personal power and we invite conflict. Don't expect others to respond well with that energy around. They just won't. These negative attitudes arise from a fundamental weakness in our worldview. We're seeing our personal circumstances as out there, an uninvited other. We're not choosing to work with what we have. We haven't taken charge. Every one of our circumstances can be a wonderful opportunity for developing new strengths and better ways of dealing with the world. When we look back on past difficulties, we can often see how much we've learnt from them and we can commit to working with the difficulties we face right now. We can take charge of our response. Might as well greet them with the best attitude we can and respond to them as our opportunity for practising, perhaps kindness or staying positive or making our life meaningful despite or even because of our circumstances. Little by little we reprogram our responses and we can regularly choose to work with exactly what we do have in our lives and make the most of the challenges we face. That's our strength and that's the core of our personal power. We can start small on some little thing that we're feeling resentful or intimidated or rebellious about. Is there something that you don't like doing? that you definitely don't want to do, but you know that you should, and you probably will. Can you choose to do it instead? Find yourself a good reason. Instead of, I should go to the party, try, I choose to go to the party because I know my presence will make all the difference to someone, perhaps a friend. Instead of, oh, grown, I know I should do that assignment, try, 
I choose to finish my assignment this weekend because that's the best way to structure my time. Or perhaps you hate shopping. Well, wait. You can choose your next shopping expedition. You might say, that's my time for making healthy choices for my family. Sometimes it's really hard to own a choice, to bring all of ourself along. We can get quite stuck in resenting some external pressure that's making us do something that we really don't want to do. But if we know we're going to do it anyway, and it's not something that we should refuse, then we can try saying, I choose to, I choose to, a few times. See if the energy shifts. If you're not quite there yet, perhaps you can offer yourself some sweetness. How can you make the situation nicer for yourself? Perhaps I'll play my favourite music in the background. Make a personal commitment to operate out of choice. You'll reclaim your personal power and you'll be much more alive and available to what's going on right now. When we feel good about ourselves, what we're doing and where we're going, we naturally build more fruitful relationships. There's great personal power in self-esteem. Self-esteem that won't be damaged by arguments, by adverse circumstances, or even by someone else's poor opinion of us. We're not caught up in defending our own shaky foundations, and we can be compassionate and vulnerable when it's appropriate. We can find that we've been quite wrong and be willing to admit it. It's unfortunately true that most people's self-esteem is not actually that indestructible. So how can we strengthen our own? Generalise from your positive experiences. I completed that task without a hitch. I can complete tasks successfully. Form a loving relationship with yourself. Be kind to yourself. Be your own best friend. Keep plugging away at your own self-destructive tendencies, even if you've had a fall from grace. Catch yourself on negative self-talk. Nip it in the bud. It's unhelpful to you and it doesn't take you forward. Build your own competencies. Take a course. Develop a new skill. Learn that computer program. Set yourself big goals and take small steps. What would you love to achieve? And what can you do towards it this week or this month? Make yourself a plan. Really take in praise. It feels good. Just say thank you. Don't deflect it. It can be a great healer. Honest praise is a gift. Don't turn it down. We're aiming for cooperative power. That's where we feel powerful and we're supporting other people feeling powerful too. Cooperative power, or power with, relies on the personal power of each person in the relationship and other power sources take a back seat then. It's definitely not about us controlling others. So we may need to curb our control issues. If we're accusing and pointing fingers at others, or our tone of voices become demanding, or reduce the other person to a sullen silence, we've slipped away from cooperative power. And we're in danger of inviting rebellion or stifling creativity or self-responsibility. For example, our control issue may have been having a major impact on our teenagers' rebelliousness. We might be able to pull back on control if we ask ourselves something like this. Does the problem really affect me personally? Does their way actually work, at least adequately? Can I or can't I live with the problem that their way produces? 
What compromises can we make together so that they feel more in charge? Can I see that fear is underlying my need to control? What am I fearful of? Uncertainty? Powerlessness? Or of things going horribly wrong? Reevaluate. How realistic actually is it? Perhaps I don't have to take full responsibility for everything. Maybe I don't have to save this situation all by myself. What responsibility can, and in fact should, be shared? Cooperative power thrives under consensus decision-making, where every person involved is equally influential. Many group meetings, partnership arrangements and family decisions operate this way a lot of the time. Relative power retreats for the discussion and rarely becomes an issue. So how do we support a group or team to use more consensus decision-making? Set goals and rules together. Value contributions. Share information. Be flexible about requests for change. Delegate tasks and responsibility. Give people permission to make mistakes. Own up to them and correct them without fear of punishment. Even when we must retain the power to make the final decision, there's still an awful lot we can do to include others. We can give people the opportunity to see the issues from a broader perspective. So we can inform, explain, coach and educate. When people can take all the factors into account, we can brainstorm together. Can we consult our team, the family or our work group, before making major decisions? We can encourage others to offer their point of view, even to disagree. And when they do, be careful not to take it out on them. We're being smart when we respect all contributions and not be rude about a poor idea. It could be the seed of something and we want the person to have the confidence to add their perspective the next time. When we have to correct unacceptable behaviour, we need to give objective rather than emotive feedback. And keep in mind our aim to build, not to destroy this team member. Even though we're in charge, we can let people make many decisions on their own if we set appropriate limits, perhaps on the amount they can spend before getting our approval first. People are not just tools to get the job done. They're people. They need our acknowledgement as individuals in our daily interactions, not just when there's something to be done or there's a problem. When we're not the one in charge, it can be quite hard to say what we need to say and respond well to a more powerful authority figure. Confronting powerful people can be quite a challenge. What can we do when a person we perceive to be more powerful than us says no, or talks us down, or outvotes us, or overrules us? Well, first we need to check that we are in a position to face up to them and redress a bad decision or an injustice. It won't always be wise or helpful. Decide which issues are worth fighting for and which are not, and work out alternatives. Sometimes having a supporter or several will help you present your case for change more potently. You may need to adapt your approach to fit a different culture. When you do decide that you're going to speak to the person directly, you'll have a better result if you can keep them on side. Diplomacy is the key. Make it clear you respect their authority. Be deferential and not arrogant. And definitely don't verbally attack them if you know what's good for you. 
One of their core concerns may well be loss of authority, so don't challenge that. You might adapt your approach to fit their style. For example, task-oriented people value action and results, respect their time, and get to the point without getting emotional or personal. Reaffirm their needs. Explain how your suggestion will meet those needs. You might acknowledge a good intent behind their original position and shut up about any problematic intentions that you've interpreted from their behaviour. When we support a good intent, we encourage more of it. Don't imply you're blaming them while you're explaining what your problem is to the person in authority. Use questions and reframes to improve the agenda. Remember, you can only suggest. Make it clear that you understand that the power is with them to decide. You'll find you can often influence a person in authority if you're seen by them to have integrity and to be trustworthy. This is how it played out for a man I'll call Luke here. This is basically what he shared in one of our forums on our online course. Luke wrote, My boss is a very intellectual and dogmatic man. I find it very hard to hold my ground with him. He doesn't listen to my views and he continually argues his point till other people back down. Often I feel he uses his power to manipulate people. Not long ago, we got a memo from him instructing us all on how to carry out some new procedures. They would create a lot more time-consuming work for everyone. I thought the memo was badly written. It sounded dictatorial to me, as well as to a number of other staff members. I felt I had only two choices, to obey unwillingly or outrightly rebel. I was at the end of my patience. Either of those ways, I was going to feel terrible about the disharmony it was causing. But was there another alternative? It wasn't just an internal shift I had to make. This time, I did have to make a stand against that memo. But I thought very hard about how I'd open up the conversation with my boss about that. Eventually, I went to him with the memo and I said, I just need you to know that when I read this, I felt like doing the opposite of what you'd asked. And I don't want to be like that. I want to be supportive and cooperative. My approach wasn't challenging, but it was factual. And I particularly tried to keep my opener short and just talk about my response. I was relieved when my boss didn't immediately go on the defensive. Instead, he said, Oh, that's interesting. What parts of it made you feel like that? I explained to him that I would have liked to understand why this method was best for everyone. My boss then explained his reasoning and our discussion stayed friendly and I got a better slant on the situation. I acknowledged that he had to make the final decisions, but I did suggest that perhaps next time the staff could offer their ideas beforehand. I left feeling that I could now follow the new procedures much more willingly and with a lot less resentment. I think my boss also saw some better ways to approach the rest of the staff as he put this new plan into effect. When you're going into a difficult conversation, 
stake your play on power with rather than power over. But it's not just a question of power dynamics. We'll need to use all our skills. Assertiveness, with clean, clear and concise I statements, such as the way I see it or I'm concerned about or I feel. And if we face an attack, we'll need to drop into active listening for a while to calm the situation down and move it away from a fight for control and back to a more equal balance of power. We're after a cooperative partnering where people stand in their personal power together and find solutions to shared problems. When we do it well, group projects will move forward rapidly because the energy isn't being wasted on competitiveness or hostility or putting up opposition just for the sake of argument. Each person is consulting the others and they might explain or coach or educate as needed. And each person is free to agree or disagree and add their vision into the plan. You might even argue it out strenuously and at length, but the focus is on the problem and the alternative solutions. It's not on attacking the people. At the end, everyone accepts responsibility because the choices have all been made together. Do you have a power with relationship in your life already? Well, maybe it's not perfect, but now you have some extra tools to head in that direction. Okay, here's the summary. When relative power is affecting outcomes, we should be very alert to how power is being used and by whom. It's a question of intent. If our intent is to serve ourselves at the expense of the other person, we're using power to manipulate. But if our intent is to create benefits for others as well as for ourselves, we might be able to helpfully influence each other. If you've become aware that an unfair power tactic is being tried on you, draw out the underlying needs and values and redirect the conversation towards the positive. When we stand fully in our personal power, we can speak up with confidence for what's fair, but victim, persecutor and rescuer behaviours will ultimately diminish that ability and we can transform those roles into consulting, coaching, and taking responsibility for moving forward. We also honour our personal power as we choose to work with the difficulties and the challenges that we're facing. It's not I should, it's I choose. We're taking charge of our lives. Don't undermine your self-worth or your self-esteem. You need all of it to exercise your personal power effectively. Of course, we're going to have to respect others in authority over us, and we'll need to work with them quite carefully to have our point of view included in decision-making. If you're the one in charge, find ways to promote a climate that values the collaborative approach. Include the input of others. When we're committed to cooperative power relationships, we need to keep our own control issues well in check so that we can emphasise power with rather than power over. We respect the other person and what they need and then combine our strengths to work together towards solutions to shared problems. We move forward more powerfully with agreed plans 
and joint visions. If you'd like more details on all of this, have a look at our website at Conflict Resolution Network. Our headquarters are at crnhq.org. You can download a transcript and explore extra study notes on power. And there's a free trainer's manual there too. And for ongoing reference, you can purchase a searchable PDF of the book Everyone Can Win. Well, in this episode, we've got a better grasp on how to share power with others. But the deep feelings that must be negotiated in conflict can also trip us up. So join me for the next episode, where we're going to look at managing emotions, our own and other people's. It's the next skill in our 12 Skills Toolkit. <laughs>